whose mark are you wearing? Let's pop the top on this. Cue the music. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. Pick up your sword, gather your strength from the only one. Pick up your sword, gather your What's up, guys and gals? I'm Carl. And I'm Chris. And you're listening to another episode of that Philly Faith Podcast, where we talk the walk and walk it too. Set the tone for us, Chris. You know what time it is. Knock, knock. Are you serious? Uh-huh. Who's there? Theodore. Theodore who? Theodore wasn't open, so I knocked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, that's so corny. <laughs> On top of the fact that it's a it's a knock knock joke, it's really really terrible. Yeah, <laughs> he said, "Are you serious?" <laughs> yep. So I don't know if I told you I got in a little bit of an altercation this weekend. Did I tell you about that? Mm-mm. I'm bringing it up. Yeah, I was out. I was out shopping. These three guys came up, just started harassing me. One was named one. One was named three and one was named five. The odds were really against me, man. <laughs> oh, I was like, I was invested until I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's pretty good. You want to know how I got out of it? It was a pretty, pretty sticky situation. Uh, uh Yeah, sure. Tell this other guy came it. up. His name was two. Started talking smack on all of us. We found a common enemy. Let's just say we got even. I love it. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> so what's what's going on in your world? You know, not a whole lot. Well, I mean, there's a whole lot, but I haven't really had time to sit down and meditate and reflect. So we've been uh, remodeling the house. Mm-hmm. I say, I say, I say the house, it's like two rooms right now. And it's like light remodeling, painting, new fixtures, some crown molding, which is my Achilles heel. Yeah. And all that I, and all that I do, no matter how many YouTube videos I watch, no matter what I do, it always, I can't ever get it right. Mm-hmm. My scenes never match ever. Not one. So it's always like, oh, you know, I got to put filler in it or whatever. So, so yeah, it's not a whole lot of, you know, deep, deep biblical thoughts this week. Just anything in general? Anything in general. I mean, I do know, like, I feel like I'm getting signs that we're getting older. Oh, yeah. You know, so we were moving, we were moving the, uh, our King mattress um, from one bedroom to another, me and my wife, and we got we got it there. We got it across the. And I mean, it's it's a fairly heavy mattress. Uh, most king mattresses are, mm-hmm. and uh, I I put we put it down on the frame. And I was like, I said, I'm getting so old. I used to be able to do that like by myself. Like when when we lived in Quincy, you know, we lived in that duplex. I hauled one up a flight of stairs by myself. Yeah. You know, you know that. So it's like, I'm like, I, I, was like <laughs> I, I literally was like, 
gasping for air at the end of it. And I was like, I'm drained. I'm done. Mm -hmm. Like we put the bed down. Let's go to bed. I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. And then, you know, being able to, to do that kind of project, you know, for two days straight, I'm whooped at the end of it where, you know, we could, you know, stay two or three hours of sleep, go all day, two or three hours of sleep, go all day, two or three hours of sleep, go all day. No big deal. Mm -hmm. Right. Now it's like, if I do that two or three days in a row, I'm like, I'm sleeping for 36 hours. Like, yeah, there's there's such a long recovery after that fallout. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Getting older. Yeah. It sucks aging. Oh yeah. I've been thinking a lot about love. I know we talk about it a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, all Christians talk about it a lot. You know, right. the love of God. Have you ever really just meditated on the sheer magnitude of it, though? Beyond just the, you know, just the the thought of love in general. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just the extensiveness of his love for us. Of his love. His love for us, yes. Right. I mean, I'd like to say yes, but... I mean, not really, like, sat down and thought about just that concept. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, I've... It can be in generalities. Right. Like, what's your... If you had to pick out, like, whether it's personal, like an individual example, mm-hmm. or biblical, what would be, just off the top of your head, an example of his love for us that resonates with you? I mean, I know it might be passe... And it's the it's the easy route, mm-hmm. right? But it's and it's because it it pulls one of our most iconic verses is John three sixteen, right? Right. But all of John three, that whole entire chapter, I think from top to bottom, um, is um just resonates with love. Um because at the end of it, that's where you get the, you know, all the world is darkness. And God brings the light into the world. Yeah. And, you know, so for those who come into the light, you know, their sins are forgiven. Right. Mm-hmm. And that always kind of, and well, I want to, I want to read that because I want to get that right. Yeah. Absolutely. If you don't mind. No, I don't. So my Bible's upside down. <laughs> Does that mean we all, I mean, most of us know John three sixteen. Right. Yeah, it's one of the most iconic verses. Even non-believers know that one. Right. So if we skip down to John 319, it says, this is the verdict. Light has come, and it's capital L, light. Mm -hmm. His love, his light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because of their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that they may be seen plainly. And and what he has done has been done through God. Um, So it's like, you know, it's like no matter how dark it is, no matter what dark corner of the world that you're in, light can always get to you. Yeah. He can always get to you. His love can always get to you. Right. So that leads me to. It just comes down to trust, right? Right. Like it's just that act of trust to step into that light. Mm-hmm. And that kind of leads me to what I feel goes right along with that. Um, so let me, let me get this straight here. So we skip on to Romans 8, 
37, it says, No, and all these things are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, and I find it poetic that the first comparison that he makes in this nothing can pull us away from God's love is death. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, even death can't separate us from his love because he gave up, he gave up his son as the purchasing price for our souls. Right. So even through death, nothing can separate us from his love. Yeah. The ultimate me, separator can't even yeah, separate us. Right. Yeah. So um, neither death nor life, neither na- angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think, you know, those kind of, you know, John 3.16 and and these kind of coincide with each other is he purchased us from death through through Jesus, right? Yeah. So I'm and, and this is what I don't I don't think a lot of people like really stop and think his one and only son, his most precious commodity that he had was the thing that he gave up to purchase us Mm -hmm. that he loved us that much. Like that's it's kind of mind blowing. Right. And, and I say, and and that's why I say, you know, it's, it's kind of, well, it's the passing answer, John three 16. But I think if you really sat down and think about that, like that's, that was a heavy price to pay. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. I love that you mentioned the purchase price. I'm not going to get deep into it right now. It's actually something I wanted to have a discussion on in the near future is the the, the similarities between, or I guess the parallels between how he, he purchased us in the typical Galilean marriage, how it would, how it would work, how it would work, right. how the dowry would work, how the, the passing of the cup would work. There's a lot of symbolism in marriage custom of that mm-hmm. time that you see him utilize to explain to us how, how his purchase of us actually works, how he views us. Mm-hmm. And it's not as chattel, right? It's, it's not as an right. object to be owned. It's as a, it's, it's as a beloved, right? That's how he views us. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, even while we were enemies of him, that's how he viewed us. It's, mm-hmm. it's amazing to me. Yeah, how it's how he doesn't want that servant relationship with us he mm-hmm. wants that or, or, or yeah he our slave or what have you he wants that father son father daughter relationship right. with us. he calls us a bride for a reason mm-hmm. he calls us a bride for a reason and i think it's it's important to look into the to the deeper implications of him referencing us like that mm-hmm. right you know everybody knows of you, you and you reference it with with that john three sixteen. it's it's pointing to the cross Mm-hmm. Right, it's pointing to his ultimate sacrifice for us, and I think we tend to we tend to sort of gloss over the the implications of what he went through there. And I've been thinking about that a lot this week, and you know, science informs us of just how horrific that was. Mm-hmm. It was awful. You know, they would have they would have let off with we know it was an overnight trial, so he would have been sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. You know, at the very the very onset, he was beaten, he was mocked. He was scourged. And for those of you that don't know, that's not just a simple whipping, right? It's a, it's like a, a rod and they would put multiple leather straps, strips on it, sorry, mm-hmm. with bone hooks. 
at the end. Yeah. You know, so literally rip pieces out of you. You know? They put him through that. They force marched him, carrying his own patibulum, the, the cross beam of the cross. You know, when he gets to the site of his execution, you know, slam him down on his back, set the patibulum up on the cross, stretch his arms out, probably pulling pulling things out of socket, and then nail him to it. And, you know, the way we show that isn't typically, we, we typically show it, like in movies, through the palm. Mm-hmm. But now we know it was actually more toward the wrist area. Mm-hmm. They'd carefully avoid the the cluster of uh, veins there so you mm-hmm. wouldn't bleed to death and die quick, because heaven forbid that you, know, you didn't die slow and miserable. And they would target a cluster of nerves in your wrist. And they'd nail through that. Mm. So that it caused constant, constant pain on top of the, uh, on top of all the, the rest of the pain that you're already dealing with. Mm. That I did not know. Mm-hmm. And then they'd raise you up and the hanging, it would put pressure on your lungs, right? Mm-hmm. So every breath you took, you had to pull with your arms up to give your lungs space to breathe. So you're pulling against the nails that are in that nerve cluster, shooting pain through your entire body just to suck in a breath of air that itself was agonizing mm-hmm. just breathing was was agonizing and as if that all isn't enough we know now that your lungs start to fill with water as the process nears completion so you have the sensation of drowning that's the the torment that he was in right. it's it was awful and in the midst of all that he He's being mocked. He's being ridiculed by most of those that are mulling around at his execution site. And he looks down at him. And he pulls himself up, painful as it was, so that he could get air in his lungs so he could breathe out. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the manuscripts, that's eight words. Eight painful, agonizing words that he chose to breathe out toward people that hated him. To remind him that even in the midst of their hate, he still loved them. It wasn't enough that he just die for them. He had to put himself through additional agony to breathe that love out loud to them so that they'd know it. His love is incomprehensible. Impossible to wrap your mind around it. A friend of mine, uh, Suzanne, she said something this week that really, really hit home for me. Mm-hmm. She said, and it's super simple, but super profound. I hope love is my last breath. I absolutely adore that. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Through all that torment and terror and pain. He chose love to be his last, his last breath for us. And we can't even honor that by being kind to one another. We spit out casual hate constantly. Mm-hmm. Let me read something. Let me pull it up on my phone. This is a devotion there's a devotional that I read daily. Normally it's okay, but 
a couple of days ago, something jumped out at me and it was, it was when I was really contemplating all this. Mm. And then I read this and then he gives a couple references from Samuel and Colossians and Hebrews about, uh, the word translate In the King James version. He's pointing out that the word translate only appears three times okay. to make his point. I'm not going to read this whole devotion because it's not really the point. But then he says in the beginning, this is the two sentences, the first two sentences of this devotion. He says, the words translate or translated are only found in our three verses in all the Bible. Now I'm quoting him here. Some less than bright bulbs use Bibles other than the King James Bible. Let me read what he said again. Some less than bright bulbs use Bibles other than the King James Bible. You know what he's saying there, right? Yeah. He's saying you're stupid if you use a translation other than his. Right. Now, what he said after that in the devotion was true. It was accurate. But does it matter? When you lead off your devotion... With an insult. With an insult. With casual hate. I probably wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have went past that first sentence. In fact, I'd have probably, if I was in that devotional series, I probably would have abandoned that whole entire series. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that would, and I don't think they'd be wrong to. Hate puts up a wall. Right. It puts up a wall that no amount of truth can penetrate. That's why love and truth is so important. Because love is the truth. Right? Mm-hmm. We need to be more like him. Even in the midst of that, I only bring that up because I just want to highlight, even in the midst of all that pain and all that torment, he asked his father to forgive the ones who inflicted the pain on him. Right? And and we can't even handle slight disagreements over translations without being derogatory and nasty toward one another. And Mm -hmm. I'm guilty too. I'm not just condemning everyone around me. I'm just as guilty. We've got to do better. We're, we're never going to advance the truth through any vehicle other than love. It's the only way to do it. But does his love cancel out his holiness? This is my next question for you. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no, too. I think a lot of times we treat it like it does, though. Right? Right. The ones at the base of the cross were unholy. The way they were behaving. His love chose to forgive them, but it didn't cancel out his holiness. I think that's how we approach it sometimes, though. Does that make sense? I think we treat his love as if it's at odds with his holiness. Mm-hmm. I think that's how traditional Christian doctrine tends to approach it. Too often. Right. right. Like love cancels it out. Mm-hmm. Love's, love's in conflict with holiness. And I disagree. I disagree entirely. I think love seeks to to bring us to a place where his love can work in tandem with his holiness. Mm-hmm. If he was holy without love, he'd just destroy us for being unholy. Right. But he is loving. Mm-hmm. So he chooses to withhold the judgment to bring us to a place where we can be holy like him. That's how it works together. Right. It's not one or the other. Right. I don't think there, there are two sides to the coin we've talked about a lot. You know, the, the, the all grace all the time side that seems to disapprove of his holiness. It's the right word. They don't like it. Right. They don't want to be bound by it. 
And then the other side that's so obsessed with his holiness that they're not, they're not loving. Like they don't have a concept of his love. We have to be in the middle. We have to understand that his love, his love is holy and holiness is driven by his love. Right. Mm-hmm. It works together. They're both part of his character. And if we want to walk with him, we have to reach a place where love and holiness is part of our character too. But he does the work. Right. Do you have any thoughts on that before I ask my next question? No, I mean, it's, I mean, it makes sense. It's, you know, if you're, if, if all, if all you do is witness to, to saved people, are you, are you really that loving towards the people that aren't? Like, are you, are you seeking out the unloved for love? Right. You know, something that bothers me and I hear it more often than I care to admit is almost like when we talk about non-believers, especially more militant non-believers that have died and we almost have like a, a, a joking attitude about where they are. Yeah. That really bothers me. That's not his heart. If, if we had his heart, we would be grieving over those that have died without finding him first. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at, look at the, I mean, we brought him up a lot. King Manasseh, look at the extent to which he went to rescue him. He didn't deserve it, right. but he did it anyway. You know, God tells us repeatedly in his word that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked because he knows where they're choosing to go. They're choosing separation from him right. and he doesn't want that. And if we have his heart, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want that either. And we certainly wouldn't make jokes about it. Right. It's not funny. It's not something to joke about. It reminds me of a, and I don't mean to make light of the, 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 the gravity of what we're talking about. It reminds me of a show and a certain situation where basically a wanderer rolled into town and he raped a young woman in town. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was at the end of a long string of, burglaries and home invasions and kidnappings and other rapes, right? Well, and as he's leaving town, he's captured. And they find a piece of jewelry that belonged to the young woman on his person. So immediately, no, no trial, no nothing. You're guilty. That's all. That's all the judge needed. He was sentenced to be hanged. So, the whole entire town is like rejoiceful of this, of like, Hey, we're going to have a hanging, you know, this, you know, this terrible person is going to be hung and, and like almost celebrating his death. Cause he, cause he was very unrepentive. He's like, yep, I did it. And I'm not sorry. I did, you know? And, but there was one person in the town that was like, how can you be joking about this? Cause like the, like the young kids in the schoolyard were like laughing about, you know, I, I wish I, I wish I could pull the, the rug out from underneath them. And you know, all that guy's going to stretch and everybody, and, mm-hmm. but it was that one, one person that had this, like it was, that person was at odds with the entire town. Like a man's going to lose his life an unrepentive man is going to lose his life. How can, how can we be so callous towards it? 
And, you know, I kind of put that nugget away and that's what this conversation kind of brought that up is like, that's the, I mean, that's the mentality we need to have is person's lives are in, in the balance. Mm-hmm. Their, their eternal salvation is in the balance. We shouldn't be rejoiceful of somebody that's getting their just rewards is what I hear all the time. Right. Right. And that's why I bring this up because he makes it clear in his word. Holiness matters to him. Right. Right. Choosing to, to willingly walk with him matters to him, but he loves us and he doesn't, he doesn't take pleasure in us choosing to walk away from him. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so important to understand the relationship between his love and his holiness because we have one side that's, that's just, they're, they're just cheerleading people in their sin, a sin that separates if it goes without repentance. We have another side that's so self-righteous, it's like they take pleasure in the thought of other people going to, to the pit, or hell, whatever you want to call it. And both sides are wrong. They're dead wrong, but together they represent the majority. I think, you know, if you, if you take that middle road of really, really genuinely choosing or asking him to have a heart like he has. Asking him to to view people the way he does. For your heart to break for what breaks his. You're going to be at odds with most of the, You're going to be at odds with the whole town. Mm-hmm. You know, figuratively speaking. You're going to be you're going to be a remnant. And it's going to feel like you're walking alone. And I'm not saying none of them are saved. That's not what I'm getting at. But uh, it's like the people that choose to get it are so few. And I don't understand why. I know why. Because... On the one side, sin's fun, and they enjoy their sins, and they don't want to change. And then on the other side, self-righteousness feels good. Puffs you up. Right. Both sides are sensual, in a way. Both sides are driven by how they feel. The one side driven by how sin makes them feel good, and the other side driven by how their pride makes them feel good. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Right. And it's that remnant in the middle that just wants to be driven by what drives him. That's what should drive us. Right. We're walking with them. Mm-hmm. I will say too that, you know, I like to I like to think that I try to strive to the middle, but I do find myself on paths one way or the other until something, you know, and that's where I feel like it's more than just head knowledge. Like mm-hmm. you need to you need to have that closeness with him. So when you start to walk one way or the other, he can kind of he kind of pulls you back towards the middle. Yeah, right. We all stray. We all stray off the course. Anybody that tells you they don't, they're probably lying to you. They're probably right. the, on that one side of the self righteous area. Like mm-hmm. we're all going to stumble and stray and, and need to be redirected back on course. I think what separates the remnant from the rest is the willingness to be redirected. Mm-hmm. Some just aren't willing to be redirected. Right. Watched a documentary and and was taking notes on it. And one of the things that I got out of it, you mentioned it, it's kind of funny how it lines up. And they were talking about the difference between non-believers and believers. And it's in reference to what God says about himself. He says, I am. When, when Moses asked his name, he said, I am. I am that I am. It's all you need to know. I am everything to you. Mm-hmm. Put anything behind that you want. I am. Right. And they said that the, and I, I agree with them, but I added a little bit to it. 
the non-believer says God is not. They respond to his I am statement with no, you're not. Right? And the mm-hmm. believer responds with God is. With his I am statement with God is. And I added that the believer that takes, that's the head knowledge part. Right? right. We know he says I am. We know he is. The ones that take that head knowledge down to heart knowledge are the ones who live like he is. That's the difference. It's not just what you know, it's what you show. Mm-hmm. What you show matters too. And that's where holiness comes in. We know about his love. We feel his love. We experience his love. We show where that love leads us. His holiness. Right? They have to work in tandem with one another. He does the work. We, I, you know, I, I say that ad nauseum because I want to make it very clear. We don't do the work of ourselves. We'll always fail. He does the work in us. Mm-hmm. But if we're surrendering to it, it should have a result. If it doesn't have a result, you're probably not surrendering to it. Right. Right. You're not surrendering to that process. And the process does matter. Let me ask you a question. Can your, can your unclean intentions pollute something that's otherwise clean? I believe so. Even and even to the even to the point of but so I guess in the sense of if you don't if you are genuinely unaware of what you're doing is unclean, mm-hmm. then I think you can still pollute it, but I don't think that's necessarily an act of sin. Right. You know what I mean? So let me let me add an additional question to what you just said. I do believe that he has grace for ignorance. Because mm-hmm. you, you're, you're describing ignorance, ignorance of the uncleanness. Yeah. Right. But does your ignorance purify the unclean in his eyes? Or is he just being merciful to you? I think that's I think that's the mercy and grace. So he's still views it as unclean, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah your ignorance unclean. doesn't change his definition of, of clean right. or unclean, correct? Right. Or holy or unholy. Better, right. better stated. Right. So I imagine, I mean, imagine the scenario in my head of, you know, you're sitting on judgment and the list of your grievances is poured out mm-hmm. and onto you of your grievances against him, against God. And, you know, there might be a handful that, you know, that he can say, I know your mind and I know you and I know that this was something that basically you didn't know better so this one while I still don't like it you're innocent of it is that the right word I don't almost like you know a child is 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 for me child children while they do sin until they can distinguish the difference and know the difference between the sin they won't be judged for those. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think acquitted might be a better word. Acquitted, than yeah, maybe that's right. Yeah, like I, 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 I guess I don't, I'm not really making a whole lot of sense in, in where I'm going with. No, this. I know what you're saying. You know, the, he he approaches you differently based upon your what you know. Mm-hmm. You can still be forgiven if you repent, but he approaches it a little bit differently. But his his underlying definition, the foundation of how he defines holiness, doesn't change. Right. Your your ignorance doesn't change the foundation. Okay. The foundation's laid either way. I do yes, I would agree with that statement. Um and and to that effect though, I I think that's why it's it's a tricky road 
when you're dismissive of some of of a view mm-hmm. simply because something has been done for so long one way i feel like we can we can get into a very sticky situation and not walking things out and not studying certain certain viewpoints you know what i'm saying no i know exactly what you're saying i think sometimes you know if a lie becomes popular enough, no one questions it. Mm-hmm. And then when people refuse to question it for long enough, people point to the longevity of the lie to defend the lie. Right. As if the older the lie becomes, the more truthful it becomes. Yeah. It's because a lie is old doesn't make it any less of a lie. Mm-hmm. Still not true. Right? We just don't right. test it. And I think we need to test everything we've been taught. You know, but the metric is his word. It's got to always be against his word. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul praised the Bereans for testing everything he said against the word of God. Everything. Put him through the ringer. And he said they were noble for it. Right. They didn't just accept it as true. They proved it against the word of God to see what, it, to make sure mm-hmm. everything Paul was saying lined up perfectly with the word of God, right. which would have been what we call the Old Testament, by the right. way. They didn't have a New Testament then. Right. They maybe had one gospel. That mm-hmm. was it. I think that's where, you know, and you know, the intent of that questioning was not, I think was the intent of the questioning was right in the sense of, you know, not, did you really say this? You know, it Mm -hmm. was more of, you know, I want to learn about this. I want to know this. I want to, I want to see it. I want to, you know what I mean? They were putting God at the center of their circle. Right. They were, they were ensuring that Paul was true. Which was the right thing to do. Right. Do you know the story of the brass serpent? No. From Numbers chapter 11, I'm just going to summarize this. What what had occurred was the people were complaining against God. This was after the Exodus. Okay, Mm -hmm. they're in the wilderness. And they were complaining against God. After everything they had seen. These are the people that saw the miracles with their own eyes. Right? They saw the deliverance from Egypt. They saw the deliverance of the Red Sea. They saw his presence with them. They experienced the, the the Mount Sinai event where he gives them, he offers them the marriage covenant. They saw all this. Okay. I believe it's after, after that. It's, it's after their deliverance, for sure. And they're complaining because they don't have the food they like. They're complaining about all the food that they had in Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. And how it was better then. And God got sick of it because their complaints were sent. Right. Right. They were, they were, they, they seen, they had seen so many of his miracles. They had seen him prove himself to them in Egypt. And the response was, you're not giving us enough. You're not blessing us enough. You're not doing enough for us. What more can you do for us, God? Right. We had it better over there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'd rather go back to the false gods and serve them Mm -hmm. because they gave us better food. That's essentially what they were saying. He had enough and there were consequences for their sin. And the consequence in this case was that the camp got infested with poisonous snakes. Right. And I think there's, you know, you can dive into, you can dive into the brass serpent account, that whole, that whole chapter. There's a lot of symbolism. Maybe we can do that sometime. I don't want to get too deep into it, but the camp got infested with poisonous serpents and it was, they were biting the people obviously and killing them. And in the midst of their sin, they're not really sorry yet. They're, they're sorry about the consequences. I don't know that they're really sorry for the sin. Right. They're sorry for what's happening because of it. 
and he, his love causes him to move because they plead to him. Right. Mm-hmm. So he has Moses make this, what we call the bronze, the, the bronze serpent, the brass serpent. You put a, a, a brass snake on a pole because they were being afflicted by snakes mm-hmm. and lifted the pole up and were told that anyone who had been bitten by a snake, if they looked upon the brass serpent, they would be immediately healed. And obviously that's a picture of Jesus. Right. Right. We're told by Paul that that's a picture of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He is, he is our brass serpent. Right. You know, and you know, that should tell us something pretty deep too. Anyone who looks upon him and believes and trusts, they'll be healed. Because this, you know, the snakes represent the consequence for sin. The poison represents the sin that, that corrupts and kills spiritually. Mm-hmm. And he heals us from that. Right. So they had acted in an unholy way and his love moved in to rescue them from their unholiness. Right. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't legalize their complaining. It acquitted mm-hmm. them of their, their complaining. It acquitted right. them for the sin they had committed. It didn't make it legal. It didn't mean that moving forward, they could keep complaining against him. His holiness right. was still fully in effect but his love was protecting them from the consequences of their unholiness. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, centuries later, King Hezekiah took the, but they still had the brass serpent. Centuries later, they still had it as an artifact of the temple. And King Hezekiah destroyed it. Do you know why? No. Because the people were worshiping it. I was going to, I was going to guess that, but I was like, I don't want to be guessing the Bible. But my my thoughts were to they turn from it turn from a a symbol of his love into an idol to mm-hmm. worship. Yep, it's absolutely right. So the object itself, the brass serpent, was it a holy object? No, I would disagree. I think the object was because it came from God. I thought I thought Moses made the. Made it though. Moses made it at the direct, at the at the direct command of God. God told him exactly how to make it. Okay. So, if if to me, if the tabernacle and the ark is holy, so is that, because that was the you know the ark was made by by Moses too, but according to God's direction. We have a very similar situation here with the brass serpent, same as the tablets of stone. It's all made directly by God's direction. Okay. And I, I would argue that everything that comes from God is holy. Okay. So I would argue that the, the object in its original intent was a holy object. Not in the adoration sense of, I think we, I think we've polluted the idea of what a holy object is. Right. I think we, we, we've allowed, let's just say it, Catholicism to kind of, to kind of stain our view of what holy objects are because they, they treat it like these people were treating the best, the brass serpent. Mm-hmm. They borderline worship it. That's not what I mean. I just mean it's something that God had set apart for himself. Okay. When I say holy, that's what I mean. It's set apart for God by God. Right. Okay. Okay. But their intent made it unholy. Right. Right. If we start from the preposition that it was a, it was an object set apart for God, the people had made it unholy by their intentions with it, by what they were doing with it. Mm -hmm. It became a snare to them. Uh, essentially polluting a holy object with their unholiness. Correct. So they took something that was originally good, something that was a picture of Jesus, a picture of the Messiah, a picture of Yeshua, and they polluted it because that's what the enemy does. 
the enemy seeks to, to, to take things that God has set apart for himself, things or people that he set, up, set apart for himself and pollute them with his unholiness, mm-hmm. like a poison. Right. So, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to form, I'm trying to form the th- of, of how to word this in my head. So, I think, I think used in the camp, it was a holy object, but I think after its purpose was done and it healed them, I think that's where it probably should have just been left and not kept as like a living holy object as it were, mm-hmm. right? Because beyond the point of the healing, what was the point in keeping it beyond that, unless directed to keep it beyond that, what was the point in keeping it beyond that, if not to revere it as a holy object? I think the purpose was remembrance. I think we have a similar thing with the the rod of Aaron that budded. Remember, Aaron had mm-hmm. a rod, and and God miraculously caused it to to bud, to sprout, to sprout buds, and they kept that in the ark as a reminder. Okay. They also kept a jar of manna in the ark mm-hmm. as again as a reminder. So I think you see God do that, and we'll actually get into this in the second segment a little bit. But God uses reminders to point back to the things that He's done for us. And I think originally it was a way to point back to, as a reminder to how how the people had sinned, but also how his love moved on their behalf to protect them from the consequences of their sin. I think that was the point of the reminder. But they allowed the enemy to come in, because remember, King Hezekiah comes in on the heels of a lot of paganism, right? Right. That it, that it infested the kingdom of Israel at that point, and the kingdom of Judah. and And they had polluted the temple with their paganism. Mm -hmm. And part of that pollution was taking the brass serpent and worshiping it like an idol. Okay. So they took something that I think was, was intended for good Mm -hmm. in the beginning in Moses day in Joshua's day. And they, you know, I I keep using the same word, but it's the only word for they polluted it. Right. They stained it. They took something that was God's and they made it into the enemies, which is what the enemy does. The enemy tends not to, and this is going to be important as we move forward, because this is going to be the start, sort of the foundation of a discussion I want to have over the course of the next two or three weeks. Okay. That we'll, that we'll, that we'll, we'll, we'll better define in the next segment, the bottom half of our episode. But the enemy doesn't tend to create worship practices out of nothing. He tends to counterfeit God's practices. Right. Right. To stain the things that, that God wants, that God considers holy. And to make it unholy so that he can take credit for it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's almost like spite. Right. Right. It's almost like spite. Right. So I, and the only reason that I, that I, that I question it the way that I do, I, I don't want people to think that I'm like questioning the holiness of the object, but I guess this kind of comes from a little bit from our, con- from our conversation last week brought in brought into about your sanctification and holding on to objects because there's memories attached to them Mm -hmm. not the memories themselves but the objects become a displacement for the memory and that kind of couples with my hoarding mentality oh yeah that i have genetically put in my head of you know 
I, I tend to hold on to things more than one beyond what they're intended for. Mm-hmm. And then also what they're useful for. Yeah. Now, in this situation, I do also see your point of that. It, it is useful as a reminder of the miracle, but then also, I think it's it's a tricky situation because it's very easily turned into an idol to worship, right? In the sense, and the thing, and like we talked about last week, where you know, like your your mint condition copy or your original copy of like Halo or Morrowind had become a source. I'm not saying you were worshiping those things, but. He may have viewed it that way, though. But yeah, by his but, they, but they had become idols. the mm-hmm. The things that had lived beyond their usefulness that were that were keeping you from him. Yes, right? and I'm glad you brought it up uh, to highlight it because I think there is a distinction between when I say holy, I mean separated by God, mm-hmm. and that's what this brass serpent was. It was an object that he had separated unto himself. I think when we say holy object, we think relic. Okay. I think that's that's what we tend to think of in our mind as relic because the idea of a holy object has been polluted by the way orthodox Christianity treats relics because they'll take you know, they'll even do creepy things like take bone fragments bones, from a saint's yeah. hand and put it into a necklace and wear it because they think it gives them good buck. That's that's a relic and that's essentially what the people were doing with the brass serpent in King Hezekiah's day. That's why he destroyed okay. it and ground it to powder, and he was right to do that. He was right to destroy it. Do you, see, do you see what I yeah. mean by the difference yeah, between the difference. how how yep. God views an object as holy and how Satan deceives us into viewing an object as holy? Right, because he so, views it as just separated, and Satan wants us to view it as a as an object of worship. Right, and that's a and I think that's a good distinguish. I I think those are, uh, uh it's a good it's a good distinction between a holy object and relic, mm-hmm. in the sense that a holy object, is, like you said, is something that. And, and and I'm learning today. You're, you're teaching me right <laughs> along with everybody else. Is that you know that's something that he specifically set aside. Whereas relics are things that we put we put the value that we put into them is us thinking that they're holy when he didn't set them apart. Right. So it's it's yes. the difference between us setting it apart in his name versus which isn't really holy or things that he set aside for the intense pur- for the intense purpose of being anything that he set aside is holy. Yes. Right. Okay. We we tend to set objects aside that we call relics and ascribe supernatural power to the object. That's right. idolatry. Mm-hmm. When the people looked at the brass serpent and they were healed, did the brass serpent heal them? No. It, that and that's that's kind of why that's was yeah. my argument of was it the object that was holy or was it holy because it he worked through it? It was a what's the what's the word for it? It was a conduit. Conduit. That's a perfect word. Yes. Man. It was a conduit for his power. He did the healing. And that's right. that's how subtle the deception is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That you know, the Satan's very, very subtle in his deception. You know, it's, it was it wasn't a, a huge step from this is just a conduit of God's power to this is God's power. Right. To this is our God. You know what I mean? Those are the Mm -hmm. steps that were taken with the brass serpent. Conduit, power, God. Yep. 
And so you get to King Hezekiah and he destroys it. Now, here's my, my question. This is what's really kind of important for the discussion moving forward. Does this work in reverse? We can take something, an object that's otherwise clean or holy, and pollute it with our uncleanness or unholiness. Can we take something that God views as unholy or unclean and purify it by our holy intent? No, because our intent will never trump his words. That's why, I mean, it's 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 guard against in the Bible is you don't add to my word. My word is my word. And even Jesus himself preached on that is, you know, like the Pharisees would, he didn't condemn the Pharisees for following the word of God. He condemned them for adding to the word of God, putting extra things on top of his laws. Correct. Making, you know, and, and putting them together and making, so making them one law mm-hmm. where there's clearly a separation. Yes, absolutely. Like, yeah, so to sum it up, our intentions will never trump his commandments. Correct. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10 clearly tells us to make a distinction between the unholy and the holy. Right. And the unclean and the clean. He, he commands that, you know, and his, he's an unchanging God. He doesn't change his mind. Right. You know, that didn't shift. Because Jesus. Right. We can't put a Jesus tag on the unholy. What I'm trying to say here is we can't put a Jesus tag on unholy things and think that makes it holy. Right. Okay. I'm going to read something. It's, it's from Haggai chapter 2, and we're just going to read verses 12 through 14. It says this, If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests answered, No. So this is a question-answer session between God and the priests. Mm -hmm. Continuing in verse 13, Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priests answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares Yahweh, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. See what he's saying there? Mm -hmm. He's reminded them that you can you can spread unholiness or uncleanness to that which is clean or holy. You cannot do it in reverse. You cannot take something that he views as unclean or unholy and make it holy by your intentions with it, right. by your feelings, by your opinions. Mm-hmm. Your opinions are irrelevant. That's what he's telling us there. Yep. And he likes and likens it to the practices of the people. This is going to be... I'm going to wrap up this top half of our episode here, but this is going to be sort of the overarching theme for the next two or three weeks. We've been talking about holiness and unholiness a lot, right? Specifically Mm -hmm. with sanctification, the process of being made holy. Now, last week, I think it was last week, we talked a lot about it individually. You you referenced it with my unhealthy video game habit. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, a lot of other things in my home. Entertainment. Yeah, just anything in general. When you bring something into your, your hobbies or your personal life, your individual walk, that he views as unholy, you know, your holy intent. And usually when we say our holy intent, we're usually just deceiving ourselves mm-hmm. and to hold so that we can feel good about holding on to things that we shouldn't right. hold on to. Are we, are we, as you stated last week, we, we tend to, instead of keeping them at the circle, we tend to make it like a priority list. Yes. Cause I got, 
and then and which in turn leads to compartmentalizing him and well you know i've given i've given god my time today now it's time to do whatever i want whatever i want to do yep whatever feels good because i'm because i mean I'm, we're good with him Mm-hmm. You know, I showed that I loved him today. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go do what I want to go I do. did my good deed. It's, it's right. fine. And it's, it goes back to that word I use, sensualism. You know, we may not, we like to to point at false belief systems as being sensualistic. But we really kind of are, right. too. I think we're all kind of guilty of that. If we were being mm-hmm. honest with ourselves, we need to we need to surrender that sanctification process. But now for for today's episode and and probably next week's episode, for sure next week's possibly the week after. I don't know. We'll see how long this conversation goes. We're just kind of right keep it a little bit loose, but I want to share. This series is going to be four episodes long. Well, I, you know, in actuality it's 10, probably <laughs> yeah, four to 10. And it's going to lead to us completing our, the intent series. Cause I want to get through to this talk first mm-hmm. because it's going to make sense when I get to where, where I want to be at with the golden calf. And so mm-hmm. I think we need to get through this first, but I want to shift away from sanctification individually into sanctification in our worship. Why I brought up that Haggai reference. That's what he's talking about there. He's using an individual command in the law to show the priests that you believe this when it comes to meat. You you understand this when it comes to unclean meat or you know clean objects. Why do you not understand this when it comes to your worship practices? Right. What's more important, a hunk of meat, an object, or the way you approach me? That's what God's mm-hmm. saying there. Right. What's more important? Obviously, the way you approach him is tantamount right that's the most important thing how you approach him your worship and if he says that what he views as unholy cannot be made holy by your intent he means that in our approach too we can't approach him with things that he says aren't good does that make sense Mm -hmm. and he gives us the, the the outline for how to approach him and all this is going to build, it, it, it's all going to be built upon a question, but I'm going to, I'm going to wait until the, the bottom half to ask that. First, I'm going to close this segment with the following verse. And it's Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 11. And it says, beware that you do not forget Yahweh, your God, by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes. What strikes you about that verse? Anything, anything jump out at you personally? Beware. I, whenever, whenever a Bible verse starts out with "beware," that's that makes you go, "Of what?" <laughs> a special attention. Yeah, about to say right. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't use words ha- haphazardly, mm-hmm. right? God, if God is very careful with the way he words himself, yeah, very particular with how he words himself, yeah. What does he equate with forgetting him? This is the part that jumps out at me. Did you notice that? I want to say that I did. It wasn't unbelief. It was disobeying his law. Let me read it again. Beware that you do not forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. He's not necessarily saying that that you have to be a non-believer to be guilty of this. You can believe in him and remember him. But if you refuse to obey him, he equates that with forgetting him altogether. He doesn't give you credit for remembering him in your mind. 
if you refuse to obey him in your actions. What he's saying is if you don't combine what you know with what you show, you may as well not worship him at all. That's what he's saying. That's important. But too often in the churches, we treat that like it's just you stuff. We can approach him however we want, however tradition says we can, even if it's not biblical, even if the traditions we hold on to he says are unholy. We got a Jesus tag to put on it. It's okay. He'll accept it because we're under grace now. That's not what he says here. Right? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, he's, he's addressing King Saul, right? Mm-hmm. And he was disobedient and unrepentant. The point where eventually he, he even went and sought after a medium because he wasn't getting what he wanted out of God. His senses weren't being satisfied. Right. Right. He wasn't, he wasn't getting what felt good. So he went after a demonic medium. God says this, to him, rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. He says that disobeying him is no different in his eyes than being an idol worshiper. I think he's saying the same thing he's saying in Deuteronomy 8.11, just in a different way. If you disobey me, he says, you might as well worship false gods, because you're not really worshiping me. You're not approaching me the way I command you to approach me, so you may as well not approach me at all. I don't accept it. That's what he's saying here. I'm not putting words in his mouth. That's what he's telling us here. Right. And he is an unchanging God. He rejected Saul for this. Rejected him as king outright. That's how we got David. Because even though David sinned, David sinned bad. David had a heart to pursue God. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. David David faltered grievously, grievously in his actions. But he didn't end his life in a state of despising God's law. I worry that a lot of Christians despise his law. We're going to get into st- some statistics in the next half to make my point there, but I, I think in far too many cases, Christians, including the ones at the top that are leading churches, despise his law. They market their doctrines really creatively, right? Hmm. To make excuses for disregarding his instructions. It just feels like they, they hate what he says. Right. So they don't want to apply it. So they want to, they want to give themselves and the crowd an excuse. He tells us he doesn't accept it. We can't make the unholy holy by our intentions. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work for the priests in Haggai's day, and it doesn't work for the pastors today. It's just not something he accepts. I know this is tough. I'm doing my best to, to, to bring truth and love. Right. But at some point, if you're not blind, doesn't do any good. I'm just going to end the segment by saying, you know, you don't honor his name by willfully and intentionally disobeying him. You don't honor his name by putting his name on unholiness. It's how you profane his name. 
It's just the simple truth of it. I'm going to try to be as soft in approaching this topic as I can. That's going to be the end of our top half. I'm going to save the rest for the, for the, for the next half. And I'm going to do my best to approach it with a rule that I, that I mentioned a few weeks ago. You remember the unifying theory of two plus two? Mm-hmm. For those that missed it, it's a writing technique. And essentially it states that the most effective story is one that you don't hold the reader's hand. Right? You give them two plus two. You don't give them four. If they choose to come up with three or five, that's on them. Right? Right. You give them everything they need to arrive at four. Mm-hmm. You leave it at that. That's how I'm going to approach this topic. I think it's the only way to approach this topic. To just present what the father says. To present what, what to present what we've done traditionally with what the father says and leave it to you to arrive at the conclusion that you'll arrive at and pray that you arrive at the right one. All right. That's all I can do. Do you have any final thoughts before we move on? No. Getting kind of heavy today. <laughs> you gotta, you're supposed to be the one that brings levity. Isn't that your gift? Well, yeah, well, it's not really a gift. Sometimes it's inappropriate. Like, it's trying to be a serious moment, and I'm like, hey, we hear a knock-knock joke? <laughs> well, you have my permission so, moving forward. All right, so well, so to close this out, I, it popped in my head randomly, and I don't know if I've told this story, and if I have, stop me. So the other day, and this just kind of a antidote to kind of round out the segment, um... But it's kind of it's kind of kind of goes along the same, the theme of of showing love. So, I was driving. We, me and Abigail went to Quincy. It was just me and her. And on the way back, I was leaving Hannibal. I know this make the geographical makes no sense to the listeners, but you know <laughs> they can look it up. Yeah. So, you're driving on the highway. It's two lane high or four lane highway. Two lanes go one way. Two lanes go the other. Right. You know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm just tooling right along, going the speed limit, you know, doing, doing my thing. Abigail's in the back. She's tooling on her, 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 on her pad, you know, being good or whatever. And, uh, I'm just kind of cruising along, going the speed limit. And out of nowhere, this lady zooms by me in the passing lane, cuts me off to the point where I had to put my brakes on. And then, like, just, like, speeds on in the, sa- in, in the same lane in front of me. So I'm like, there's no reason for her to have cut. Like, she wasn't turning or, you know, it's just total disregard. Felt like spite? Yeah. And so, and this is this is where, where I talk about where, you know, I like to be on one path, but very easily I get pulled <laughs> off into one way or the other. I said, son of a B. Yeah. Right. Audibly loud. Not not to myself. I said it out loud. And I was like, immediately. I, mm. So I look in the rearview mirror and Abigail's still looking at her tablet, just tooling along. I'm like, oh, dodged a bullet there. <laughs> But as soon as I said that in my mind, she goes, Daddy, who's Mitch? 
That's <laughs> like, uh, person driving that car. <laughs> That's who he was. But then that made me that made me stop and think. You know, are we? And this kind of led to 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 something I've kind of taken on is, you know, prayer is supposed to be a talk, a communication, mm-hmm. not just thank you God for this food. God, can I have this? Thank you, God, for that. It's it's communication. It's back and forth, right? So this led me to, in those situations, it's like almost like talking to him like he's in the car with me. Mm-hmm. Like, God, I don't know what her what her hurry was or why she did what she did, but bless her. Have a whatever whatever she needs be that for her right you know what i mean so it's just kind of that that kind of led to you know it's funny how those things like that funny story leads to to me kind of taking on this you know when when we say you know because i feel like very quickly we turn it into you know pray for the people that wrong you but i think we quickly turn that into Oh God, you know, give her what she deserves. You know, like it's more like we pollute that with, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, with the wrong kind of praying, I'm praying for that person, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's more of like talking with a friend about like basically account. And that's what he is. He's our counselor, right? Like that was, that was a really rough situation and I lashed out and I'm sorry about that. You know, please, you know what I mean? Like, I it's, exactly more, I mean. it's it's more not, it's more just not being like, God, I pray for her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think he wants us to reach the place where we have a near endless inner conversation with him. Right. Like a dialogue with him in every circumstance. Mm-hmm. I don't think he frowns on that. I think it's what he wants. I think too often, you know, we have these scripted prayers that we, that we have at specific points in the day. And it, it kind of serves to push him at a distance. And then mm-hmm. we wonder, you know, when we really need him, why he feels like he's at a distance. Right. Well, because you, you always kept him there. Right. That's where you told him you wanted him. And yeah. He, he just respected you enough to, to, to give you what you asked for. Yeah. He wants to be right there by your side always. Right. I think, yeah, I think, and that's why, that's why I was, you know, the, the, the pray for people that have wronged you gets lumped into praying because it's time to pray and mm-hmm. these are the things that you're supposed to say like we say oh we have to say grace okay so that entails thanking god for the food you know and then we we eat and then always oh, say grace we're good like again the top of the list we put god first before we eat so we just say our prayer, we check the box, and then we go on to eat whatever we want to eat and talk about whatever we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I feel like you, in, and that's kind of where I was, was, you know, oh, yeah, I'd like to say that I pray for everybody that wrongs me, but it turned into I pray for them, but I don't pray for them correctly. Yeah. And, and I like the word you use, dialogue. I don't dialogue with God. I don't communicate with them. Mm-hmm. I just say, eh bless that person, God, and then move on. Yeah. And that's the most important thing that, that we need to develop in our walk is that dialogue with him, because that's, that's evidence of a relationship with him. 
right. you know, and it's going to be much easier to walk out the sort of holiness that we're talking about. If you have that relationship with him, you know, where you're, you're available to him to be guided and redirected mm-hmm. and convicted and disciplined. Right. If, if you keep him at a distance, you're probably not going to feel those things because you're, you're callousing your own heart. Right. Cause you don't want to hear it. You like the things that you do. Right. You just want you, you say Jesus a lot to make yourself feel better about doing things he doesn't like, but you like the things you do and you don't want to hear him say, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't want to hear that. If you have a relationship with him, it's 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 not about you anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, every day that you walk in a relationship with him, it becomes less and less about you and more and more about him. Right. Right. And it's going to be it's going to be a lot easier for you to to know his will for you. Right. If if you walk with him. Cool teaching moment. Oh yeah, it's funny how he uses things like that. Um, I, and that's where you know, again, it goes along with the. I, I know we're we're wrapping this segment up, but it goes along with the, the my my overarching theme of our role as, you know, sons or daughters, husbands and wives, and fathers and mothers. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's. He's using that adage to teach to it's just like a reoccurring theme that I feel like that's what he's using to teach me personally. Yeah. I feel like, and that's where, you know, we talked about it earlier, you know, using one, one Bible translation, I feel like you would be discounting how many times people have gotten something from a new international version mm-hmm. because quite frankly, King James Version might be a little hard to understand. Right. Now, am I saying that it doesn't have its place? No. Am I not saying that have a copy of it, read one, read the other, see how the translations work? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like study it. But, you know, that's where, because people learn differently. And I think God understands that. He made us all different. Yeah. He didn't make us to learn all the same. Mm -hmm. But again, he can give us two plus two with the Bible. It's up to us to arrive to four. Yeah. But it comes down to that word study. We usually just read it. It's not or the same thing. Or let somebody preach it to us. Mm-hmm. And then we just go on what they say. Yeah. That's worst case scenarios. Yeah. You don't even read it. You just, you just let somebody read a few cherry picks out and give you their opinion and you adopt that opinion as your own. Mm-hmm. But even, even a lot of us, when we, when we do dig into the word, it's just reading it like it's a time magazine. You know what I mean? With the same care that we would, you know, with, with any other, with any other novel. Right. We don't, we don't treat it with seriousness. Right. Right. If, if you want, if you want to get to the correct sum, you've got to study out what he had to say, what he has to say to you. That's all I got for this top half. Right on. You good? All right. Yeah, let's chop it. All right. <laughs> yeah. Hard break. <laughs> we'll continue this discussion on the, on the bottom half of the episode. Uh, which will be our, our main topic for the week. But while we take this short break, we're going to play this week's featured song, which is Blood in the Water by Mike Maranatha. Be sure and join us on the other side. Enjoy.
love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But now for those who believe because of the resurrection, there is no condemnation for us. Blood in the water, love from my father. He set me free from the pills and the drink and the marijuana. On a cross he hung, lamb to the slaughter. Poured out his blood and took the wrath right from the father. Can't nothing separate us from his love. Let it penetrate and saturate, we covered by the blood. Though I walk through the valley, but a shadow with death. I will not fear no evil, cause I know my God resurrected. Yeah, they can take my life. But they can't touch my spirit Hells no sir, that's off limits All finished on the cross of sin diminished Living this life, I know that it is a fight But I'ma keep on going Ain't no slowing down on this ride Take a look 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 See the whole world is getting shadier Darkness all around really got me feeling like I'm crazy But I know that I am sane, yeah Know that I am saved This new life in Christ rage inside like a tidal wave Now I'm fighting these spirits, vipers and boa constrictors These demons ain't got a chance Now that my vision is clearer Having visions and dreams I'm out there fishing the seas Of souls that have grown cold through the sinful disease So we gon' teach them by him Yeah, he the king of all kings He's the one that can heal And truly set captives free Drug dealers and killers Prostitutes and the thieves It don't matter where you're from Jesus loves you when he sees Every tear that is dropped, bro The falling down your cheek I can tell you what it costs, bro He hung and died for me And for you we did the same That's why we lifting up his name Jesus Christ of Nazareth The perfect lamb who was slain Keep walking Keep pressing in Keep confessing, find God-loving Christ-exalting believers and do life with them, get help, get guidance, but don't give up. I won't let you go. And we are back. Again, that was Blood in the Water by Mike Maranatha. Before we kick off this topic on this segment... Bottom half. I want to read some stats. No, oh, okay. there's nothing bad. I was like, uh, well, it's bad, but not Deer headlights. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's bad stuff, but not not for you. This is a. It was a recent Barna study that they did, and it was it was polling those who claim to be practicing Christians and regular churchgoers. So these are the people, and it's, it's American. These are the people filling our churches. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those who have a biblical worldview, 17%. Of practicing Christians and regular churchgoers, the ones that professed a biblical worldview, only 17%. Okay, biblical worldview? Like the like God created the world? There's several factors and different questions. We're going to get into some of the other questions they okay. asked that, that contributed to that. But the only 17% consistently had a biblical worldview. Okay. Okay. 
Those who express strong agreement with ideas from New Age spirituality, 61%. of practicing Christians and regular churchgoers agreed with at least one aspect of New Age spirituality, which is paganism, by the way. Those who strongly agreed with ideas of postmodernism, 54%. Those who had strong acceptance of Marxist ideas, 36%. Those who, this blew me away, those who strongly agreed that everyone prays to the same God, regardless of what name they call that God, 28%. Over a quarter of all Mm. Christians believe that no matter what you call them, Dagon, Baal, Allah, it's all the same God. No big deal. <laughs> Zeus, Aries, Ra. Yeah. <laughs> Those who strongly agreed with the statement, quote, meaning and purpose come from becoming one with all that is. That's pantheism, by the way. 27%. Again, over a quarter. And finally, and this is probably most relevant to our topic on sanctification and worship, those who strongly agree that morality is defined simply by what a person believes, not by biblical truth, 23%. Your personal beliefs define what is moral, not God. He doesn't get to say. It's how I feel. I don't know if you should have let off with those. There's a lot to unpack there. What are your thoughts? Let me have it. It's That's distressing. Isn't it? That doesn't paint... That doesn't paint a very hopeful picture of the state of the church in this country. That paints a picture of a failing church. Mm-hmm. Again, practicing Christians and regular churchgoers. They have to be getting these ideas from somewhere. They're clearly not being discipled. Right. They're clearly not being properly led by the rock star preachers that are leading them. I don't know what to say. It's hard to put it into words. I wish, and this is probably what's the most devastating, is I wish I was surprised. That might be the most distressing part for me that's, that, is that I'm not shocked. Yeah, the, that's. I think that's more so than the actual facts themselves. That's the gut-wrenching realization that I'm not surprised. That's yeah. the way that, that, that that study went. Yeah. I think what bothered me the most is is the very first one, the, those who have a biblical worldview. When I read 17%, my reaction was, oh, good, that's higher than I thought it would be. That's That's problematic. Yeah. Right. When in my experience, I think 70, 17%, that's doing pretty good. No, it's not. That's awful. <laughs> right. That is awful. Those statistics are terrible. But this is, this is where doctrines built upon the concept of compromise lead. Guys like Charles Spurgeon were warning us about this. You don't see him quoted very often for good reason. Not for good reason, but for reasons that mm-hmm. these preachers have. You know what I mean? They prefer to yeah. twist somebody's words that can justify their doctrines on do whatever now. Right? Paul yeah. says we can do whatever we want now. We're going to get into a series on Paul and what he really said right. pretty soon too because I think that's important. But typically that's where it starts. 
We build a foundation of Paul out of context to justify creating a new religion with a new moral code that seems to shift with the society. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a moral line shift, yep. That last that last that morality is defined by what a person believes, not biblical truth. That's exactly what that's saying. Your feelings and the feelings of the culture around you decide right and wrong, not God. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God himself says. It's not what he said at Sinai. It's not what he said to Moses. It's not what he said to any of his prophets. And it's not what he said to Paul or through Paul. Certainly not what Jesus said. And when Jesus gives his revelation to John in the book of Revelation, that's definitely not what he said. When he's addressing the seven churches in chapters two and three, every single one, I know your deeds. I see what you're doing. I see, I know what you know. I see what you show, and what you show isn't good. That's what he tells six of them. It isn't good. I think it was six, right? Philadelphia's the only one not told to mm-hmm. repent, correct? Right. Every single case. You have things you need to fix. Your outward show isn't good. That implies a strict moral standard from which he's judging, right? right. It can't be a shifting line. Otherwise, if they're his chosen people... He could just shift the line ever so slightly. Right. I'll just move it a little bit to make you right. Right. I always, I always say if, if there's no rule book, you can make up the rules at any time. And, and I say that more so is, is when, you know, when employers that have historically had a handbook and HR all, all of a sudden throws out the handbook mm-hmm. to where you don't have a clear defining place to go to look up the rules like we have in the Bible, right? We can clearly go and look up the rules. Then the rules can be made to be whatever they want at the whim, Mm -hmm. which is puts the employees of said company at a disadvantage. Correct. Cause they never know what the rule is from day one to day two to day three. Mm -hmm. Creates chaos. Right. And that's what I mean by compromise is it's essentially what we do with his role, but we go, but like, Pastors tend to, to look at his rules right. when they agree with them. When it's something they agree with, like adultery, yeah, we need to abide by that. When it's something they don't agree with, like the Sabbath, that's just for the Jews. Right. Even though the Sabbath dates back to Adam before the fall, right. or there ever was a Jew. You see what I mean? Right. Just using that as an example, because it's going to be relevant moving forward in this segment. Right. We can't pick and choose what we like from what we don't. His rules aren't a buffet is what I'm trying to say. Go ahead. I think, I think, to for me, what a lot of it, what a lot of I see, is we tend to treat the Bible as a storybook. Yeah, especially we, the pages previous to Matthew. Yeah, right. That we, that we, that we pick out the, that we pick out the stories that have teachable moments, and those are the only ones that we pay any attention to, and all the rest of it is just. Filler, mm-hmm. right? It's not really stuff that, uh, you know, it's just stuff that's there that was being recorded at the time. This is the stuff that, you know, when it is, uh, there's stories in it, but it, I've, it, it's also a rule book. It's a manual. It's a lot of different things all packed into one. And you can't just pick the stories out 
and like those. The parts that you identify with personally. Right. Or or want to use as teachable moments and and throw the rest out. It's I feel I feel like the that's hearkening to the to the days where the only Bibles were in Latin. Was it Latin? To where the common people couldn't read them mm-hmm. because then they couldn't be controlled by being told what was in there and what wasn't in there. Right. You know, I mean, if you're if your refusal to study it and the is this tantamount to not being able to read it then you're just, you know what I mean? You're, you're on that same path. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the sad state of, you know, as expressed in those statistics of the modern churches, the modern believer, you know, before to deceive the people, religious leaders had to keep, keep the Bible from being put into the common tongue so that they couldn't read it. Mm-hmm. They don't have to do that anymore. Cause then the people aren't going to read it anyway. Read it anyways. They don't need to hide the Bible from them. They don't need to burn Bibles. They don't need to keep it out of, out of print. People aren't going to read it in anyway. They're going to believe whatever they want to believe. And nothing that God seemingly, according to those statistics, for a lot of believers, nothing God says in the matter seems to matter to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a pause here too and say I was on that train, vehemently on that train. I think that's kind of what led to, to me moving away from. God in the church was, I was just, I was only, <laughs> sorry, that was, I don't know if Carl's going to keep that, but my stomach was growled real loudly and it made me laugh. Well, sorry. I got to keep it now. All right. <laughs> well, if we do a long pause, maybe you can cut it out. No, it's all right. We'll uh, leave it. Uh, all right. <laughs> so, um, you know, so here I am going to church checking the boxes, mm-hmm. not really studying anything, just being taught. And then, you know, I what I see within the church isn't reflective of what I'm being taught. And things aren't lining up, right? Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads to this distaste for the church and, you know, and 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 I won't go into to to my to my story because that's there's a lot to unpack there, but you know I feel like that's you know I just want it to be known that anything that I say comes from a point of you know and and I, and I'm very much I'm not I don't want to say I'm still on that path because I'm 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 still coming from a place of well I'm not smart enough to study the Bible. Yes, you are. Everybody's smart enough. Just read it. Yep. You know, so that's, I don't know, maybe that, that mini pause there is, is like, you know, that's the, that's the path that I was on mm-hmm. is very much just go to church, be taught. And then, and I think that's the kind of mentality that leads to, you know, if, and, and, and I think that kind of leads to the ugliness that you see today and people is when you say something that's not what they were taught, they're quick to to spit it back at you. Mm-hmm. You're a heretic for saying that, really? Because that's in the Bible. What I yeah. just said's in the Bible. Did you not know that? Like how many times? And 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 I think that's funny too. Is how many times you'll Christians will 
post memes or have stuff in their house or they'll hear, you know, people hear something or tattoo it on their body and they don't even realize it's from the Bible. Mm. Like it's just, it's mind boggling that the, 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 the distance between what we're being taught and what we're actually studying is. Yeah. And the inverse of that too, that was a a statistic I didn't write down, but if I remember right, it was, it was upwards of 20% genuinely believe that those Jesus helps those who help themselves as an actual Bible verse. Spoiler, it's not. It's not in the Bible anywhere. That's not what he says. And that that's kind of a bastardization of the paradigm that we're actually presented in Scripture. Right? He will reach out, (laughs) you know, to shake those who aren't currently helping themselves. It's just it doesn't doesn't paint a good picture of biblical literacy. Right. Right. When, you know, there are things in the Bible that they're completely unaware of and things that they genuinely believe is there and it's not. Right. And I think a lot of it does come back to what you said. I think people have been deceived or duped into believing they're not smart enough to handle it themselves. They need to have some some rock star preacher at the at the front of the church with multiple degrees and maybe a doctorate to tell them what to believe. No, you don't. Right. right. Them them going to college for for 10 years didn't make them more capable of understanding the Bible than you. Right. It, it didn't. It qualified them for the paid position that they have. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make them more capable of understanding the Bible. You're capable of understanding the Bible and God's word just as effectively as, as them, maybe more so. Because the problem with, with theology degrees is it comes packaged in with the problems that are contributing to these statistics. Right. And now they have all these, these wayward ideas from well-respected scholars and church fathers and theologians mixed in that aren't necessarily biblical, but those ideas have been elevated to the status of biblical truth. Because they had to affirm those ideas to get passing grades. So those ideas became their own. And now they pass those ideas on to you because you don't think you're smart enough to handle the word yourself. So you're accepting the same, let's use a, let's use a Passover reference since Passover is coming up. You're accepting the same leaven. You're accepting mm-hmm. the leaven, right? Mm-hmm. Leaven, you know, the, the teachings of the Pharisees was, was likened into leaven by Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Leaven, it's funny, it doesn't take much. You can have an entire batch of dough and one little, one little chunk of leavened dough works its way through the entire batch. Yep. Eventually works its way all the way through corruption, compromise, bad doctrine, human tradition that conflicts with the word of God. It's just like leaven and it's no different than the leaven of the Pharisees. And by the way, the Pharisees were the educated class in their day too. They were the smart ones. They were the elite ones. They were the ones that studied the, the Torah and the prophets their entire life. Jesus didn't choose Pharisees to be his disciples right. because they had mixed in too much compromise. Right? Mm-hmm. And I would argue that those 12 disciples, well, the 11 that he chose, they were more biblically literate than the Pharisees that opposed them without the study, without mm-hmm. the the nature of the study. They studied, right. just not in the same way. They weren't accredited. Right. <laughs> right. And that brings me to the question that's going to be driving this conversation. And that is, whose mark are you wearing? And from a, a biblical perspective, when I say the mark, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Biblically speaking, like 
The mark of the devil. Yeah, the mark right. of the beast. I think everybody would say well, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, the beast, yeah. Yeah. And that comes from Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18. I'm not going to read it, but it essentially says that when the Antichrist comes on the scene at some point, he causes everyone to receive his mark. And specifically, he says they, they receive it in their in their hand and their forehead. Now, I'm not going to dive into the weeds on what that's going to look like, right? What form that's going to take. Is it going to be physical? Maybe. What I am going to point out is that that's idiomatic language. Okay. Hand and hand and forehead. To, to have something in your hand and in your forehead is idiomatic for what you believe and what you do. Right. What you know and what you show. So these are people that believe in the beast, in this satanic power, this antichrist, mm -hmm. and act upon it, act upon that belief and worship and reverence of him, of the enemy. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. I think it's a, like I said, I I don't, yeah, we don't want to dive into the weeds of, the, of what it actually looks like, but to me it's like, it's going to be clear. Like today it's kind of muddled between what's holy and what's not. It will be a clear distinction between what is unholy. Whether that's an aura around you or, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like whatever form that takes, it'll be a clear distinction. I agree. I don't think it's going to be some confused thing where you, is it the mark? Is it not? I don't think it's going to be like that. Right. Well, no. Did you know that God has a mark? Uh, yeah, we did. I think we kind of briefly discussed this. Have we? Have we? But I don't reference that a little bit. I think we did, but I, I kind of don't know if it's if we discussed it maybe off the record. We may have, and then now it's kind of because I know we we have so much talks before and after that. Yeah, it's easy to conflate. It's easy to conflate it, but I do remember that we talked about that. Um, he has a mark and it's, it's not, I don't, the irony isn't lost that it's the exact same mark that will be in the, not the exact same mark, but it'll be in the exact locations mm -hmm. on your forehead and in your hand. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> There's actually three instances that we're going to look at where he, he declares something to be a mark upon his people. And two of those instances, it doesn't just use similar idiomatic language. To the mark of the beast there uses identical idiomatic language okay that's important right especially right. when we when we in an in addendum to what we talked about at the top half of this episode that the enemy seeks to pollute what god declares is holy he seeks to to take the things that god calls holy and pollute that with the unholy and we'll get into this a little bit deeper probably next week but i believe it's similar with the mark here I believe it's something that God has declared for his people that the enemy has polluted for his own purposes. Mm -hmm. But let's just start off looking at the first one. We'll just go in order of where it appears biblically. Okay. Let me turn to the first one we're going to look at is Exodus chapter 13. I'm fully committed to this old fashioned paper Bible on the podcast, Chris. I hope you're proud of me. <laughs> Exodus 13, you said? 13. We'll read verses 3 through 10 is what we're going to look at. Okay. Moses said to the people, Remember this day 
in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand Yahweh brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day, in the month of Abib, you are about to go forth. It shall be when Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to Yahweh. Talking about Passover here. Mm-hmm. Talking about the Passover week. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. Just pausing there, leaven is a is a symbol. It's the whole point of this. That's why I mentioned that a, a minute ago for compromise or sin. That's what leaven represents. It, lever, it, yeah. it represents the the compromise that the enemy tries to instill in God's people. So this act of removing the leaven is is a is a very f- visible reminder that we need to be cautious to remove those impurities, to remove that unholiness, to remove that sin. Mm-hmm. Verse eight: You shall tell your son on that day, saying, "It is because of what <clears throat> Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall serve as a sign to you." on your hand, and as a reminder on your forehead, that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth, for with a powerful hand Yahweh brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. That's where we're going to stop there. That's everlasting command, right? He repeats this command in later in the Sinai Covenant, right? Right. In the Marriage Covenant. It's, it's what Yeshua became, Jesus became the, the physical representation of day and day. He is our Passover lamb. Jesus is what Passover was pointing to mm-hmm. all along, right? And then when he's celebrating Passover with, with his disciples, when he's about to partake in the fourth cup of the Passover meal, he says, I'm not going to drink this again until I drink it with you in the new kingdom, Right. When mm-hmm. I return. Mm-hmm. So it's relevant to believers today. I just, I wanted to mention that because I think the first argument is going to be, well, Passover, that's Jewish. That was to remind them of the Exodus. We don't have to do that because we're Gentiles. First off, Gentiles were with them in the Exodus. Egyptians came too. Second, I don't know how you can say Passover is not relevant if you believe in Jesus as our Passover lamb. Right. Because Passover and Easter aren't the same thing. We're going to get into that next week. That's going to be the toughest pill to swallow. They ain't the same. Passover is a different thing. He says this is to be year 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 to year, meaning forever. And says it's a sign on the, on the hand and the forehead. What you know and what you show. Celebrating this Passover is what you show. The word remember there is interesting too. I wanted to highlight that. It's sikron in Hebrew. And it's the same word used in Joshua chapter 4, verse 7, in reference to the memorial stones they put up when they crossed the Jordan. And the whole purpose of the memorial stones was so that they could look back. We kind of we talked about this a little bit in the, mm-hmm. in the first half, so they could look in reference to the brass serpent, so they could look at what God had done. So they would have this, this visible reminder of what God had done for them. Right. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Same with what I, was, what I was trying to get at with the brass serpent. It was a, it, it was a memorial. It was a zikron of what he had done, how his love had protected them from their own sin. Right? Mm-hmm. And I believe Passover is the same. 
for the that was my stomach that time i'll leave that into you out of fairness goodness i don't know if the, if the mic picks it up but it's just it's kind of disturbing because it's audible to us yeah it's very bad I believe it's the same for the Passover here. For the Israelites, it was a reminder pointing back to how they had been delivered. As prophecy unfolded, it was pointing them forward to how the Messiah would deliver them in the future. And now that we're on the other side of that deliverance, right, Mm -hmm. that Jesus brought to us, it reminds us of how he delivered us and points us forward to how we'll celebrate it again when he returns. This is just as relevant to us today as it was to the ancient Israelites then, if not more so. I would argue more so. Right? Mm-hmm. And again, we have this idiomatic language. Identical, hand-in-head language. Again, almost like the enemy's mark is a counterfeit of God's. Take with that what you will. Right? right. If, we're, if we're treating this in reference to the Passover, and the enemy wants to come in and pollute our celebration of what Jesus has done for us with a counterfeit, I don't know. What would that look like? If he wanted to pollute our remembrance of what Jesus had done, what might he do? Make sense in pagan practice? Make sense in fertility imagery? Deceive us into changing the date? I don't know. Hint, hint. Hint, hint. You tell me. Move on to the next one. Exodus chapter 31. And I'll go, I'm going to go through these fairly quick because I want to have time to kind of discuss it a little bit at the end. We're going to read verses 12 through 17. And for context here, this is again, this is again that marriage covenant that he offered us at Sinai, the marriage covenant Mm -hmm. to which, and we'll get into this more moving forward. This is the marriage covenant that Jesus restores us to, right? When you get remarried, the vows don't change. Maybe a new marriage, same vows, right? These are the vows of the covenant. Now he's already talked about the sabbath in the ten commandments the very beginning of the covenant in exodus chapter 20 he speaks that out loud to them and the sabbath is part of that the sabbath is the only of the ten commandments that he specifically says remember this almost like he knew a time was coming when his people would intentionally forget it's the only of the ten that he does that of all the ten commandments it's the most repeated scripturally of all of the ten commandments it's repeated the most from, from beginning to end of the biblical text. And it's the only of the Ten Commandments that's specifically repeated within the marriage covenant here. And he chooses to, to seal the marriage covenant at the end, almost like the, 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 the fine print at the bottom of the contract, by referencing it again here, the very end. And he says this, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. Sanctifies you. He views the Sabbath as a sign that we are surrendering to his sanctification of us. Verse 14. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. 
So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Similar language there. Doesn't say from year to year because it's not a yearly thing. It's a weekly thing, but he says it's perpetual. He means that's everlasting. It's forever. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. Repeats that. It's a sign. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. Again, that's how he ends the covenant, with this reminder. I find it interesting. And again, the Sabbath goes back to creation. He states that explicitly there. Sabbath is the very first covenant God ever gives to man. Very first. In the creation week when he made Adam, <clears throat> very first covenant he made was the Sabbath covenant. Adam would have been celebrating the Sabbath. Adam would have been keeping the Sabbath holy. Because that's how far back the Sabbath dates. Right. Biblically speaking, there's no way around. There's no arguing against that. Scholars know this. It's not a Jewish thing. That makes zero sense. There's no such thing as a Jew when Adam was made. Right? Right. And it even goes back before the fall. You can't say that it's only relevant with fallen man, but now that we've been delivered by grace, it's no longer relevant. He considered the Sabbath important before there was sin. So it's completely outside of that box. Do you right. see what I'm saying? Yeah. Just wanted to, to mention that before we move on. Now we're going to move to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, before you do that real quick. Yeah, go ahead. I find it, I don't, I don't know, I don't want to say I find it funny. I think it should be real. also reiterated that he mentions that desecrating and and or desecrating the Sabbath will be put to death. Mm-hmm. He kind of goes like, so anybody who desecrates the Sabbath will be put to death. So in case you didn't hear that in the back, <laughs> <laughs> like he says it twice. Yeah, take this serious. Yeah, like it's, it's, and I think we kind of gloss over that, like, you know, uh, put to death, mm. death. You mm-hmm. know, like, like again, we just like we're reading the Bible like it's stories. Yeah, no, he's like, we'll die if you, you know what I mean. Like that's yeah. this. This is the level of the direness that I'm telling you that this has. Mm-hmm. It's what you buy here by desecrating is death you buy death right and i think there's a deeper implication to this too it's not just physical you know if you're if if you willfully profane his expectations if 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 your response to god is no i'm not going to do things your way i don't care if you like it or not i think what he's telling us here is that there's spiritual death for that that's mm-hmm. separation you're choosing to willfully separate from god that's the ultimate death the ultimate death penalty and his mercy and his grace does not invalidate his expectation. Yes, we can be forgiven. Yes, we can repent. Yes, Jesus covers over our sins. His love covers over a multitude of our sins, including desecrating the Sabbath. You know, look no further than King Manasseh when in, in I think it's Second Chronicles chapter 33, when it lists out his sins, mm-hmm. they're vile. And every single sin he was guilty of according to the law, and remember, 
Manasseh lived before Jesus. That's an important, because because the, the argument is after Jesus, we don't have to worry about being put to death for disobeying the law anymore. Therefore, we don't have to worry about the law. Manasseh lived before Jesus. Okay. And it lists out the sins that he committed. And according to the law, every single sin he was guilty of, like divination, witchcraft, enchantments, and murder, killed his own son in the fire, in the fire, in his idolatry. There's right. another one. Every single one, the penalty in the law was death. Every single sin. So Manasseh would have been facing multiple death penalties, <laughs> right? right? And when he was in distress, you know, and, and, and after that, by the way, it says that God reached out to him and spoke to him and asked him to repent repeatedly. And Manasseh said, no, not going to, not going to do things your way. God don't care. Right. He still sends him to Assyria. And it says that when Manasseh was in distress and cried out to God after all of that, even though Manasseh was guilty and deserving of the death penalty, God chose to bend down his ear to Manasseh, hear his plea and say, okay, I forgive you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to apply the judgment that you deserve. That's before Jesus. Grace is not new, right? I just want to, want to mention that because he does say here, profaning the Sabbath right. carries the death penalty. You can have grace for that, right? Right. You can have grace for that. That doesn't mean that it's now okay to profane the Sabbath because we have grace. Manasseh got grace. He wasn't right. allowed to go back to Jerusalem and continue in his evil practices. He had to repent, right? We right. have to repent at some point. You have to, you have to move what you know <clears throat> into what you show, like Manasseh did. It's just simply not an option. Right. I love how, and I think I mentioned it last week, and I'll mention it again. I love how Tony Evans put it. There is a space of time between judgment applied. I'm sorry, say that backwards. There's a space of time between judgment declared and judgment applied. That space is grace. When you're within that space, you are under grace. That doesn't mean that you can continue in the practices that declared the judgment to begin with. He expects you at some point to at least make the effort to turn away from what caused him to declare the judgment over you. Right? right? He will choose to relinquish the, the application of judgment for those he loves. You still have to, at some point, choose to strive toward walking with him, though. And that includes these instructions, especially ones that he uses such strong language for, I would argue. Did you have anything else on that before I read this mm -hmm. next? And this is just one verse. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's verse 8. And he's talking about the law in general now. So before is specific instructions. Passover is a is a is a visible memorial reminder, and the Sabbath is the oldest covenant that we have, mm -hmm. right? And it, it too is a visible reminder. Now he's talking about the whole law, all of his commandments and instructions, and he says this: "You shall bind them, the commandments, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead." Again, identical head and hand language. And he's so serious about this, I'm not going to read it, but he repeats this in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18. Same context in reference to the fullness of the commandments. On your hand and on your forehead. Now, now that we've read all those, did you notice a common word in every reference? Symbols? Sign. Oh. I'm going to give you credit because I think I 
basically the same word. Symbol, sign. Every single one of those, he said it's a sign to you. The Sabbath, he said, or the, the Passover, he said, was a sign. The Sabbath, he said, was a sign. The law, he says, is a sign. When you wear this and you believe this, when you know it and you show it, that's a sign. The Hebrew for sign there is oath. The Hebrew word oath. It's the same word in every single one of those references. Sorry, I've... Now, I was hesitating because it looked like you wanted to say something. I wanted to give you space yeah, to. Yeah, so the reason, the reason that I said symbols is that, again, this is where multiple versions of the Bible comes work. in handy. Yeah. Right, so in, when you read from Exodus um, 31 and said, this will be a sign between me and you for generations to come so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, then you go, you jump to Deuteronomy and it says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. That's why so, he says So, so that's why I said symbols because it's sign symbols. It's a marking. Yes. It's a show. Yes. I love that you said that. It's interesting to me that that same translation translated that word two different ways. Cause it is, it's the same Hebrew word. They chose to translate it sign once and symbol once it's, it's oath in both references. It's the same Hebrew. And what was the what was the first the the first Yeah, I'm I curious know, what I know it was in Exodus chapter 13 uh, verses 3 through 10. I can't remember which verse it uses the word sign. It's uh 13 uh chapter 13 verse 9. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord will be is to be on your lips. Yeah. Reminder there is the Hebrew Zikron. Sign there is the Hebrew oath. Right. So well, that was two, kind of a, that was an unfair two, question then. Two, it of, didn't, the, two, didn't of, two of them said signs and one of them said symbol. Well, I apologize. So that's your, why I did translation let you down. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I knew, I knew the, the general purpose of the question. What, what's the sign symbol that's, I guess, the, I don't want to say theoretically speaking, because it's not a theory. Theorically speaking, theologically, no, like oh, you the, 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 the source, the source, the source, the There you go. Word, Sarah, help us out here. What's the proper way to say that? Can we make that a word? The, yeah, those would all be those would all be lumped together. It's it, it, like the sourcically, like the sourcically, like that's hard to say. Yeah, like if you were to type in signs in word and then go to thesaurus, you would see symbols. Yeah. <laughs> so the Hebrew oath there is interesting. It, it, it can actually translate as mark. A mark. Okay. So in all three of those references, he's saying this is a mark upon you. Not only does it use the similar or the identical head-hand language, it's a mark. Just like it tells us that the enemies is a mark. And it can also, it can actually be likened to a brand. Like you brand cattle mm-hmm. could be likened into a brand, but my my favorite usage for it, I think, that has probably the coolest uh, visualization. It's used in Numbers chapter two, verse two, and in that reference, it represents a military banner that you would carry, right, with a mm-hmm. with a with a fighting unit. And I think that's so powerful because that's it's like a visible sign of 
whose you are, right? So it's like a, it's almost like a double purpose for those outside of God's people. It marks you as his. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. This person is mine, and this is the sign or mark or brand upon them upon them that they belong to me. And I think it's also a reminder to you of who it is you owe your allegiance to, right? I think that, that, that imagery of the military banner is perfect. Oh, yeah. For what I believe the intent of God here is, that it, it shows the world who we belong to and who they should belong to, and it shows us who we need to be obedient to by our outward actions. It's a visible manifestation of holiness in our worship. Right? Right. Yeah, if holiness had a banner. I love it, yeah. And like I say, two of them are direct references to worship. When you look at Passover and Sabbath, it's how we approach him on a weekly basis and a yearly basis. And then when you look at the fullness of the law, it's how we approach him on a daily basis in our personal life and our worship life and in every aspect of our life. Who's at the center? Right? God. And me. Should be. We're carrying his mark and that's what it comes down to. Whose mark are we wearing? Really? Are we wearing God's mark as he defines it here? Or are we wearing a counterfeit? It looks a little bit like God's mark, but with subtle differences. Does it look like a brass serpent, but we're misusing it? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Mm -hmm. It's something that we need to meditate on. Right. All of us, individually. And we need to get serious about testing what we've been taught. I don't care how much you like your pastor. I don't care how cool they are charismatic they are and I'm not saying not to like them but be a good Berean and test what they're telling you just because they learned it at a Bible college doesn't make it right if it disagrees with what God's saying here it's wrong let me say that again if it disagrees with what God is saying in his word what I just read to you it is wrong Jesus did not come to disagree with his father he didn't Jesus came to affirm his father. And if your doctrine positions Jesus in a place to be at odds with his father, your doctrine is wrong. And you're misusing his name and bordering on profaning it. You need to be cautious about that. Because clearly, he cares how we approach him. Apparently, it matters to him. And it should matter to us. God's serious about this. Deathly serious. Since you say that, let's let's look at Ezekiel chapter 20 just to start to wrap up with that. Because I don't think any chapter in all scripture really exemplifies just how deathly serious he is than that reference does. I had every intention of marking these all out exactly where they were at with these little tabs and I only did it with one. I still went almost straight to it. Good stuff. <laughs> so in context here, this is much of what Ezekiel writes about is what I would call dualistic prophecy. And what I mean by that is that 
it's at least partially relevant to the people of his own day, but it's often more fully relevant to the people in the latter days Mm -hmm. or the end of days or our days. Because I believe we're living in that time period. We're at least in close enough proximity to the end of days to be considered end days people. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a reference to us. And the reason that's important is that means that's, that's true of this prophecy I'm about to read from chapter 20. And we know that because he ends, he'll, he'll end it. I won't read it, but it'll end with, if you, if you read it all the way through on your own time, it'll end with the future restoration of Israel. That can only be in reference to the second coming of Christ. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Which means that everything before it that's describing why they need to be restored is also a reference to the the people living in the end of days. Right. Right. It, It applied to his people then too, but it applies more fully to us now. And the reason that's important is that means that this is given in a new covenant context. The reason I highlight that, and we'll get into this a little more next week, I think, but it, it's typically taught that we're in the new covenant now, therefore we don't have to pay attention to those old laws. So those references that I just read, where he says that I consider, I consider the Passover a mark upon my people. I consider the Sabbath a mark upon my people. I consider willingness to obey my law a mark upon my people. They'll say, none of that matters now because we're in the new covenant, we can ignore it. They put Jesus at odds with the Father. But what I'm about to read to you is, prophetically speaking, relevant to those living in the new covenant that'll make sense as i read this and i think mm-hmm. i think it'll jump out to you why that's so important so i'm just going to start reading from the top i think we're just going to read through the whole thing up to verse 32 okay and you said chapter is he, 20 is it okay for some reason i thought you said six i was like okay this that makes rhyme maybe we should read <clears throat> six well no it, it it's, I don't think it's really relevant to what we're. Well, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know where I got six from. Tell you what, remember that for next week because I think we'll read Ezekiel chapter six next week. Because now that I look at that, I think that's that's very relevant to where we're going next week. Okay. It just seems weird to me. I I don't ignore those things anymore. Six and twenty don't even come close to rhyming. <laughs> right. For you to have heard, six I was, I was, I was kind of reading through the first couple of, of verses, and I was like, "Boy, this does come heavy." So, but yeah, but the the so my Bible breaks down certain beyond the verses and chapters. It breaks it down with some headings for study, mm-hmm. and the rebellious Israel is a lot. Of, a lot more fitting than the than the header of what six chapter six was yeah so, so. <clears throat> just as a as a as a teaser next week i want to shift gears away from we've talked a lot this week and we're going to end this episode this week on talking about god's mark next week we're going to shift and look a little bit more on what i believe the enemy's counterfeit is and i think it, it would it would it would feel out of place if we read that chapter this week ezekiel chapter six but I think that's a perfect reference for exactly what I'm what I'm trying to express for next week on okay. why it's so important to purify our worship practices, even if it's unpopular to do so. Okay. But chapter 20, starting in verse 1, 
stop me if there's anything that you want to discuss in here and we'll just we'll just burn through this fairly okay. quick because there's one other reference I want to look at before we close off. Okay. Now in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of Yahweh and sat before me, me being Ezekiel. And the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know the abominations of their fathers, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am Yahweh your God. On that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So he's telling them to sanctify themselves, mm -hmm. to remove anything unholy or impure. Verse 8, But they rebelled against me, and were not willing to listen to me. It's that word again, willing. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. See how serious he is about not allowing his name to be profaned? That's important. Mm -hmm. Putting his name upon things that he considers unholy profanes his name. And he takes that, in your wording, deathly serious. Right. Verse 10. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. That's the Sinai Covenant. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. Do you notice that's the exact same wording that he used in Exodus chapter 31? It's no different. It's also the same word for sign, oath. It's identical. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes and they rejected my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. In my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness, to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. Notice the theme here. Verse 15. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Because they rejected my ordinances, and as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. Just pausing, you know, every time he talks about willfully rejecting his law, he links it directly with profaning his Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So one commandment, that he singles out specifically, <clears throat> the rest of them he groups all together. 
the one commandment that he separates and singles out. Verse 17, Yet my eye spared them rather than destroying them, and I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, or keep their ordinances, or defile yourselves with their idols. I am Yahweh your God. And remember, just pausing, remember that we read that he likens in Samuel, 1 Samuel verse chapter 15, verse 23, that he likens disobeying him or being insubordinate with idolatry. Right. It's the same thing. You don't have to be bowing down to a carved image for him to liken what you're doing to idolatry. All you have to do is just tell him, I'm not willing to obey you. That's all it takes. He considers that idolatry. Verse 19, I am Yahweh your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and observe them. Sanctify my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign. Sign. Again, same word. I was Sorry. Saying. Nope. No, you just beat me to it. I was going to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> that you may know that I am Yahweh your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. They profaned my Sabbaths, so I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands, because they had not observed my ordinances, but had rejected my statutes and had profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. So... There, in verse 24, in in my translation, which is the NIV, you you keep saying that he keeps calling it out as profaning the Sabbaths. So he used the exact same language there. Mm-hmm. Or it, so it, mine says, because they did not obey my laws, but had rejected my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths. So... Just before that, in verse 16, because they rejected my laws and did not follow my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths. So again, as you pointed out, he's lumping everything else together, but setting his Sabbaths apart. Mm -hmm. That word desecrate, no, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. That word desecrate is interesting, too. That's an interesting use because that implies to me that they've abandoned it. Mm -hmm. It's not just about polluting it. It's about abandoning it altogether. Verse 25, I also gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts and that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire so that I might make them desolate in order that they might know that I am Yahweh. It's an interesting link to what I read from Haggai there too. Because mm-hmm. he, he, he reminded them that they can't make holy, they can't make holy the unholy by their holiness. It only works in reverse, and he's, he's essentially saying the same thing here. I reject your gifts. Your gifts are unholy. They make you unholy. They make you unclean. Uncleanness, unholiness spreads like a plague. Holiness doesn't. Holiness isn't a disease. It's a state of being. But unholiness is a disease. Sin is unholiness, and it is a disease. It doesn't matter what form it takes, and it doesn't matter how, how much of a, of a theological christian whitewash you try to put over the sin to make it seem like it's okay because we're in jesus now 
Sin is sin. Unholiness is unholiness, and he considers it cancerous, and it needs to be cut out. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think we're going to stop reading that one there, because you get the point. Mm-hmm. Right? He is very serious about this. And again, this is a dualistic prophecy. If you move down to verses 33 on, he begins to talk about their future restoration. Right? And it's not because he's changed his mind. Because he chooses to forgive. There's a big difference. There's a big difference between him changing his mind and choosing to forgive. And you saw that he repeated that over and over and over again in what I've already read. I was going to destroy you, but I chose not to. Mm-hmm. for the sake of my name. And that's what I what I meant when I referenced, that's the purpose of my referencing what um, Tony Evans had said. They were in that space. He declared the judgment. He chose not to apply it. Right? He mm-hmm. chose to allow them to remain under a period of grace. To give them more time. Give them time and space to repent. To reflect upon what they were doing. Right? That's what he wants. He just wants us to reflect on what we're doing and come to the decision to serve him. Because that's Ezekiel's whole purpose in his ministry. We learned that, and I believe it's chapter two, that he wants him to speak to the people so that they'll turn from their evil ways. He warns Ezekiel they won't listen. He's like, they won't listen to me. They're not going to listen to you, but I still still want to tell them because I want them to turn. And Ezekiel's the one he tells that I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't want them to die. You have an obligation to warn them because I don't, I don't want them to fall off the cliff they're running toward. He's trying to rescue them. Mm-hmm. They're just not listening. And I, going back to those statistics, I worry we're in a very similar boat. You know what I mean? These people believed. They believed in Yahweh. They believed in his name. They were just polluting their worship practices. Right. I don't know that we're doing much better. You know, when we have 61% of professing Christians that agree with New Age spirituality, what's the difference? Right. New Age spirituality, by the way, is just a nice way. To, it's, a, it's a nice New Agey way of saying paganism. Right. So when you, you stopped short of verse 27 what you were just reading. Do you want me to read the whole thing out? Well, I think I might read 27 to 30. Okay. Because if we're going to go back to chapter 6, I think reading from this, it kind of goes with what we're saying, but I think it's important to set up next week. Oh, yeah. And, and I'll tell, and, I, and I'll kind of make the connection next week. But So starting at 27, Therefore, son of man, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. And this also your fathers blasphemed me by forsaking me. When I brought them into the land, I had sworn to give them. And they saw any high hill or any leafy tree. There they offered their sacrifices, made offerings that provoked me to anger, and presented their fragrant incense and incense. Nice. (laughs) <laughs> incense. They, they probably did that too. Yeah, probably. And poured out their drink offerings. And maybe we'll stop there. Okay. Um, but again, this is this is what what you're saying is is shown here where when they found some place 
that was worth praising God for in this new place. They brought their own practices in because they thought that was the right thing to do was, well, we'll praise him like this because this deserves praise. They were profaning it by, by bringing in what they thought was right, not what God was said was right. Right. And the only reason that I read, and again, like I said, this kind of sets up chapters, what happens in chapter six, which is to me kind of seems, but you know, there's cross references everywhere. Yeah. <clears throat> but I think it's important to remember that portion when we go back next week. Perfect. It's interesting too. And I don't want you to answer this question. I'm just going to put the question out there and let it drop. Taking green leafy trees, revering them, making offerings to them, placing offerings under them, dancing around them, singing to them. What does that sound like? And God doesn't say here that, well, as long as you did it in my name, it's okay. He says, this is idolatry and it's wrong. And I will not accept this form of worship. Right. I'm just going to drop that there. That'll be more relevant next week. So I guess the question is, what's the dividing line? Right. Right. And answering answering the question that we started with, the follow-up question is, whose mark are you wearing? What's the dividing line? How do you know? What's the line? It says this side is God's mark and this side is the enemy's mark. I think Ezekiel tells us. Like this is going to be very heavily leaning on Ezekiel. Right? Because mm-hmm. I think he he lays it out. And I'm going to first read chapter 22, verse 26. Or starting in verse 26. No, just verse 26 would be fine. I think this gives us a definition of the one side of it. And he says this, her priests, just religious leaders, we could apply this to pastors, preachers, teachers, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane, and they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. What does that sound like? That sound a little bit like defiling a holy object with. Well, no, I just mean I just mean in, in in modern religious setting. What kind of doctrine does that sound like? Get rid of the law, disregard the law, ignore the sabbaths. We don't have to worry about clean and unclean definitions anymore. We don't have to worry about holy and unholy definitions anymore. It's old covenant stuff. This sounds eerily similar to what we're taught in the sort of churches that contribute to these statistics that I wrote down. So what's the other side of it? I'm going to flip to chapter 36, verse 27. And this very much emulates what Yahweh tells Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 33 of his prophecy. That's a direct reference to the new covenant what the new covenant actually is. We'll dig into that in the, in the future. But I, Ezekiel says this, or I should say Yahweh through Ezekiel says this, I will, meaning in those days in the new covenant, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's how he defines the new covenant. 
Does that sound like his statutes, ordinances, and laws no longer relevant? Nope. Sounds to me like he's telling us that he'll empower us through the transforming nature of his spirit to walk out his laws if we're willing. If we're willing to engage in the process that he'll empower us to obey him. And again, going back to those who aren't willing, it says about them that they do violence to his law, butcher his law. They pick and choose what parts of his law they like. They profane his law. They ignore his definition of holiness. That's the line, I think. I think it's pretty clear. Following God's commands with a surrendered and transformed heart. It comes down to... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think it... I don't know. So, the same verse, it says the same thing. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What's interesting to me is he says, when he says my spirit, spirit's capitalized in my translation. So to me that reads, and I will put Jesus in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws, not Mm -hmm. put Jesus in you so you can do whatever you want. Right. I will put Jesus in you, my spirit, my am, my being, my in you so you will follow my laws and my decrees. Yeah, he's talking about the counselor here, Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, the spirit there is Ruach. And this, you know, that's what we're taught that we're in the new covenant, so we have the spirit, right? After Pentecost, right. we have the spirit now. But too often that's followed up with, now you're under grace. Right. And that's always presented as, because you're under grace, you can disobey. But that's not what he says. And I love how your translation renders it, I will move you to walk in. I almost like that better than cause you. I know it's basically saying the the same thing, but I just have this this visualization of him guiding us along mm-hmm. toward obedience. Like that right. analogy that I shared last week, the dog on a leash. Right? He's moving us in the in the in the the direction that he's pre planned for us. It's his direction though. Right. It's his path, it's his way, if we surrender to the leash. Right. So in, in, in that analogy, and this, this kind of goes along with it. Um, so I, I, and I know that, you know, your wife was a dog trainer. So you, you, you probably, you know, the answer to this, like what's highly coveted when you're walking a dog on a leash is a dog that will, when you step, it'll step, Mm -hmm. you stop, it stops, you take a step. It'll take a step. It's in tandem with you. So to me, like that's moving with the spirit. So if the spirit moves, you move. If the spirit stops, you stop. Yes. It's a process. It's a training. The the training process will often start with things like prong collars. Right. Which is disciplinary. It's it's pain response. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you don't think that God uses pain response, step out of line. Step out of line and find out. Promise you he does. Starts with that. Obviously, you know, the leash to 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 train in how they should walk with you. And words. Right. Command words. Use command words like stop, heal, things like that. Mm -hmm. Sit. Command words to get the dog to recognize what you expect of them in different circumstances. Eventually, the goal is with a properly trained dog, you don't need a prong collar. 
You don't need a leash and you don't even need to use the command words most of the time. The dog just gets to a place where they've been so trained up that it's instinctual that when you stop, they stop. When you come to an intersection, they sit and wait. When you start walking, they walk with you. Like, just mm-hmm. like you said, eventually it just it's just visual cues is all they need. They just need to feel you move and they move with you. They don't chase squirrels anymore. They don't run away. They just walk with you in step with you right. wherever you go without the need of, of trainers, yeah, of, of training objects. Yeah. And, 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 and I think, I think it's funny that you say chase squirrels. That doesn't mean they don't see the squirrels. Correct. But they know, they know that they know what they have here with the master is better than chasing that squirrel. Exactly. So they don't chase it. They see it, but they don't chase it. It's a matter of discipline. And the training doesn't lead them to a place where they can just chase squirrels all they want. Because I think that's how we, we treat the new covenant sometimes. That's how we treat the blood of Christ. Right. No one's trample it. Right? We, we trample on it. We treat him like he's licensed to sin. He's not. He's he's the brass serpent that frees us from the consequence of our own bad decision, of our own bad choices, right? right? That doesn't liberate us to continue making those bad choices moving forward. He will discipline us for that. We can look to him, and he'll heal us from the poison that we inflicted on ourselves. But we still have to surrender to the training process to be moved toward obeying him. And we need to take seriously the specific instances where he says, I consider this a sign upon the people that are truly, wholly, willingly committed to me. And he says that about the Passover. He says that about the Sabbath. And he says that about his law, his commandments, his covenant. I'm just... I'm just showing you what the Father says. He said it. Right? He said it. There shouldn't be anger about that. But there is. You know, just as a as a an anecdote, recently, a couple of people I know that are essentially expressing and teaching the exact same thing. There's a guy <coughs> and he's supported by as far as I my understanding, supported by several pastors that cheerlead him on his Facebook, he he makes several accounts to, and 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 somebody they know knows him personally, so they this isn't like some fake non-believer. It's they they consider themselves a believer. They stalk individuals who just say, "Hey, we should obey the Father," and take their personal pictures to make really vile, nasty memes about them, and call them love. Yeah, and call them Satan lovers. Genuinely teaches that because we we believe in obeying the Father, that we're really serving Satan. Now, what did he just do with the Father there? He sort of conflated the Father with the devil. Mm-hmm. And he's been so deluded by mainstream Christian teaching on the concept of grace that he thinks he's in the in the in the the camp of righteousness for so venomously and hatefully opposing somebody just saying, hey, we need to take what the Father said seriously. There shouldn't be that level of anger in response to what the Father says in his word. 
If there is, you need to do a serious heart check and you maybe need to evaluate the people under which you're submitting to the teaching of. If you're submitting to the teaching of a, of a preacher or pastor that's leading you to have that much hate for what the Father said in the pages previous to Matthew, you need to rethink. Maybe it'd be best to find another place of worship. Just being blind. Do you have any final thoughts? Mm-mm. Pretty much sums it up. Really comes down to this. And we'll continue this discussion next week, moving into, like I said, the opposite end of, of the spectrum on the mark. But to me, it just comes down to when we're talking about whose mark are we wearing, what's the line? Do you surrender to what God said? Or do you surrender to the question, did God really say? Or how theology tends to remarket that question, did God really mean that for me? That's the fence. That's the fence we're on, and the devil owns the fence. We just say Jesus a lot to make ourselves feel better about riding it. We need to make sure we're on the right side of it, no matter how unpopular that right side may be. That's all I got this week. Again, join us next week if you're not too mad at us. We'll continue this discussion. I think it's an important one to have. And I hope that you just consider it, consider what we're presenting, and test it. I'm not telling you just to test your pastor. Test me too. But make sure you're testing it against what the Father says and applying that. It's the only thing that matters. Thank you so much for listening and including us in your day. Before you go, don't forget to follow our podcast, leave a positive review, and click the bell icon to be notified whenever we upload new episodes. Also, feel free to join us on social media and share any feedback, questions, or discussion ideas you might have. Links are in the description. Additionally, if you can't get enough of my voice, search for the Broken Record Ministries podcast for more content for your ear holes. As always, we pray that what we're doing here is a blessing to you as well as a light pointing only ever to Him. This has been that Philly Faith Podcast, encouraging you to keep your feet steady upon the path, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and pursue that Philly Faith. Until next time, Shalom. God bless. Singing glory, amen. Singing glory.